Hello, it is so good to be with you today. I want to share some of my experiences with communism. I was born in Cuba, and when I was 13 years old in 1952, a, a communist-inspired dictatorship took over Cuba. And uh, it was a very oppressive military dictatorship. Dissidents were killed by the thousands. And a year after this dictator took power, in 1953, a young charismatic leader by the name of Fidel Castro with a group of university students attacked an army garrison in the easternmost part of Cuba. Most of those young kids were killed, but Fidel Castro and his brother were arrested and went to trial and instead of going to prison, they were exiled to Mexico. And so from Mexico, they began a revolution and began encouraging students, university students and high school students to get involved in what at the time was called the underground, something not very different to the resistance movement in France during the Second World War. And... Uh, so I found myself being involved in a revolution as a teenager and uh, primarily involved in sabotage, uh, training, trying to recruit, recruit people for the revolution to come. After I graduated from high school at the age of 17, I moved to the city of Santiago in the easternmost part of the country to go to college. I reported to the underground there. And I remember at the end of November, it was November 29th of 1956, about a hundred of us kids were summoned to a, an empty uh, high school building where we were told by the leader, leader of the revolution there, Castro is arriving tomorrow morning. And what we are going to do is 50 of us are going to attack the police station at seven o'clock in the morning. And the second group of 50 is going to be within a block of an army garrison that Castro is going to attack. And this other 50, which I was a part of, were to be the support troops for Castro's attack of the army garrison. Well, so at seven o'clock in the morning, 50 of us in little groups of two or three or four all around that army garrison were awaiting for Castro. We didn't even have any weapons. Castro was going to provide us the weapons. Shortly after seven o'clock, we had a runner come by, abort, abort, Castro didn't land. Unfortunately, the people at the police station never got the memo and most of those kids were killed. And so I thought to myself, well, I got lucky. I was in the other group. Well, of course, with the massacre that had occurred at the police station, the army was on high alert. They were going through the city trying to find anybody that they could arrest. So four of us who were in the underground decided that we better get out of the city. The university immediately shut down all classes, 
So four of us got in a car and began driving out of town. And we got stopped by an army patrol and got arrested. They put all four of us in the army truck and one of the soldiers drove our car behind us. They took us to that same army garrison that we were supposed to be attacking. I remember as they walked us in, soldiers crying out, to the firing squad, to the firing squad. And I thought for sure that was going to be my last day on earth. But again, you could say I got lucky. By mistake, other soldiers had arrested the son of an army major who was a college buddy of ours. He didn't know we were on the underground. They had arrested him by mistake and they were just released him. As we saw him, all four of us cried out his name. He came towards us and he vouched for us and we were released. And again, I thought, boy, I was lucky. And so the four of us drove to our hometown some 500 miles away. And I reported to the underground in my hometown. Well, a few months later, I got arrested by the army. I had tried to recruit someone for, for the underground who was an informer, so I got arrested. I was taken to an army garrison and uh, went through a very severe uh, beating. Uh, the, it was unthinkable. The, just to, to the point that you didn't feel any pain until you collapsed. And then they would throw me in a cell. And a few hours later, they would take me back out and the torture started all, all over again. And this was repeatedly after I collapsed, they would wait three or four hours and do it again. And certainly I thought this is the end of me because typically when the Batista regime arrested somebody, Typically, a few days later, that individual would appear shot on the streets with a gun in his hand. And the headlines were always the same. This person tried to attack an army patrol and was killed in self-defense. So I thought that would be my fate also. But little did I know. One day, I was taken early in the morning to the colonel who was at the head of that army garrison. And this colonel said to me, we are going to release you, but if a bomb explodes in this city, we're coming to get you. I remember that I said to this man, well, Colonel, how can I be responsible for what other people do? He looked me in the eye and he said, I don't give a flip. If a bomb explodes in this city, I'm coming to get you. Well, when they released me, I was able to call my father and my father picked me up. My clothes were just drenched in blood. I was all beaten up. He threw me in the car, took me home. And of course, my mother and my sister were hysterical where they, when they saw my clothes uh, 
red with clothes and uh, I had to have medical attention for all my injuries. And then I had to have dental surgeries because they had knocked my four front teeth in the top and the bottom. So I went through oral surgery and then I had a plate installed for the top and the bottom of my four feet, a teeth. So, you know, there may be some of you in your 60s or 70s that have had a plate in your mouth. I had two plates from the time I was 18 years old. Well, I had not been home for any more than an hour. When a lady whom I didn't know, but she was from the underground, came to the house and she said, you have to get out of the country. They know who you are. You are no more used to the underground. They have assigned a people to follow you 24 hours a day, hoping that you will contact your superiors and you are a risk to the underground. You need to get out of the country. Well, by this time, Castro had landed. Most of his people had been killed, but he with a handful of people had gone to the mountains and began recruiting farmers and started the revolution in the mountains. We still thought he was a good guy. He was this guy that was talking about hope and change. Those words may sound familiar to you. And of course, we never were told change to what? He portrayed himself as a liberator. And so I said to this woman, well, can't I go to the mountains? And she said to me, no, the Batista army has the mountains surrounded. There's no way to get in. And again, you could say I was lucky because that choice was not open to me. Had it been, I, in all probability, I would have been killed in the mountains like most of the people that were up there were. So I had been a straight A student during high school. So I figured the best way to get out of Cuba is with a student visa. I wrote to three universities in the United States and the University of Texas was the first one to accept me. That's how I became a Texan. So with the acceptance letter from the University of Texas, I was able to obtain a four-year student visa from the U.S. Embassy. And then my only thing else I needed is I needed a permit to the equivalent of the KGB to get out of the country. A permit from the government allowing me to give me an exit visa. Well, my father had a friend who was a lawyer who paid someone in the Batista government to stamp my passport with an exit visa. So one morning after I had my passport and my visa and my exit permit with uh, my father's car in the garage, I laid on the back seat of the car and my father got in the car with my mother and my sister and they drove to Havana to a dock where my father had previously bought a ticket on a ferry boat. I had a visa, I had an exit permit, so I was able to get on that ferry boat. It was a very, very emotional uh, departure. 
I didn't know I would ever be able to see my sister or my parents again. My sister was crying. My father was very stern, trying to contain the tears from my eyes, from his eyes. But my mother was also hysterical. I embraced them and I got on that boat, not knowing if I was will see it again, but excited about coming to the land of the free and the home of the brave. I arrived that evening in Key West and got a Greyhound bus all the way to Austin, Texas, and enrolled in the University of Texas. This was in late August of 1957. 1959, Castro took over, and we still thought Castro was a good guy. I mean, he claimed that he was fighting for freedom and to give Cubans a new hope. So when Castro take, took over, shortly after that, I went back to Cuba. And did I ever get a shock of my life? That same man that had been talking about hope and change was now talking about how the rich were evil, about how they oppressed the poor, and about the need to redistribute the wealth. I think we heard something similar not too many years ago here in America. So anyway, Castro began confiscating private property. A few weeks ago, I was talking on Facebook Live about the 10 tenants of the Communist Manifesto. The number one, the first tenant of the Communist Manifesto is the confiscation of all private property. And Castro wasted no time. He began confiscating first big factories and then small businesses. Anybody who was a business owner was an enemy of the revolution and they saw their businesses confiscated. Anybody whom they labeled the rich were enemies of the revolution and they had even their homes confiscated. And they went as far as anybody who was a lawyer or a medical doctor or maybe an engineering consultant, those were the rich. The next thing they did is they began what were called the People's Tribunals. They began just gathering anyone whom they thought was not a supporter of the revolution. And if you were not a supporter of the revolution, de facto, you were against the revolution. At these People's Tribunals, the people they brought in there were not even allowed to have a defense. What the tribunal would say, you're obviously guilty, you do not need a defense. The verdict was always the same, guilty to the firing squad. And they executed thousands upon thousands of people that were not, quote, supporting the revolution. The person in charge of those firing squads was Che Guevara. I'm sure you've seen college kids in America wearing, wait, wearing Che Guevara t-shirts. They think he is a folk hero. 
Che Guevara was one of the biggest mass murderers that have ever existed. Che Guevara boasted that he loved to go to those firing squads. And just before those soldiers fired their rifle, he would fire the first shot with his revolver. He boasted that he personally killed over a thousand people in those firing squads. And then they began putting pastors in prison, putting priests in prison, because you see, communism necessitates to eradicate the concept of God. Why? Because government must become your God. And you see it, all these socialist politicians that have a strong anti-Christian emphasis. They want secular humanism because government must become your God. So there can be no allegiance to God. Churches, uh, many of them were closed, but they led some churches, the main denominational churches, the larger churches, they allowed them to remain open under the control of the government where they had government inspectors, basically stooges, trying to watch and monitor everything that pastor would say. And as long as the pastor just tickled people's ears and didn't get involved on what was happening in the country, they were okay. They could talk about Jesus inside the four walls. If they dared talk about Jesus outside the four walls of the church, they were arrested because evangelism was against the law. You could not proselytize because it was an assault against allegiance to the government. And then, of course, everybody saw a total collapse of the economy because they said everybody must be paid the same. What happens when everybody gets paid the same? Nobody works. We saw it in America the first year that the pilgrims came to Plymouth Plantation. Those pilgrims decided to try a communist experiment. They said, look, we got all this land before us. Why don't we work this land together and share equally in what the land produces? It may sound very pretty, but that was a total failure. And you could see why it would be a total failure. Because maybe somebody could work 10, 12 hours a day, but maybe somebody else only worked like two hours a day. How long do you think that other guy was going to work 12 hours a day while this other one worked two hours a day and they got paid the same? Probably no more than a week. So nobody worked. They almost starved to death. As a matter of fact, half of them died that first year. But they were smart enough and flexible enough that at the end of that year, they went before Governor Bradford. And they said, Governor, this didn't work. So Governor Bradford said, all right, each of you take your own plot of land. You work the land. You feed your family. And the free enterprise system was born in America that first year 
of our existence. Now, the question is this. If we tried it 400 years ago and it didn't work, why would we be dumb enough to try it again? But let's get back to Cuba. So in Cuba, now they began imposing rationing. What happened is the economy collapsed. So starvation, lack of food was pre pre predominant. And so everybody was issued a ration card. You still had to buy your food. But to give you an idea, for many, many years, meat has been rationed in Cuba to a half a pound per person per month. Half a pound per month. That's eight ounces. You know, we go to a restaurant and ordering an eight ounce steak, that's a small steak. That is the total amount of meat anybody in Cuba can buy in a month. And everything else was rationed. And of course, we saw just a couple of months ago, one of the leftist socialist politicians in America boasting about Cuba having 100% literacy rate. Let me tell you what literacy means in a communist country. Communist indoctrination. In Cuba, every child from three years old on up needs to be in a public school to receive communist indoctrination every day. To give you an idea, a story that my mother told me, soldiers will come into a kindergarten class and will say to the children, okay, children, close your eyes and pray to God for candy. And then they would say, okay, open your eyes. Where's the candy? No candy. All right, close your eyes again and pray to Fidel for candy. And while the children had their eyes closed, the soldiers very quietly will put candy on all their desks. It is communist indoctrination. Compulsory from the age of three years old. The other thing those children were told is their allegiance was to the government. And if they heard their parents speaking against the government, it was their civic duty to denounce their parents. Again, breaking down the family unit, because again, you cannot have loyalty to your family because all loyalty must be to Almighty God. My mother was a school teacher most of her life. She told me a story of which I'm so proud. She was a sixth grade teacher, and when Castro took over, the government told her that she needed to teach Marxism in her sixth grade class. What she did is she faked an attack of insanity. When you're working under a communist country, you cannot resign. You can't quit. The government controls whether you work or not. So she faked an attack of insanity. She made a total fool of herself, pulling her hair, screaming. And because of that, she was released from teaching for reason of mental incapacity. She told me afterwards, I would rather suffer public humiliation than 
poison the minds of children with communist indoctrination. That was a very, very courageous thing she did. She didn't mind being shamed before everyone, but she was not going to poison the minds of those children. So, what do we see in America today? Unfortunately, we see 50% of college students thinking that socialism is a better system than free enterprise. Why? Because universities in the United States are plagued with Marxist professors and they are brainwashing those kids. As a matter of fact, if you ask the average college kid, tell me the definition of socialism. This is what they will tell you. Socialism is the control of the means of production by the people. That is a lie. Socialism is the control of the means of production by almighty government. The people have zero choice. Let me ask all of you. I'm sure most of you have or have had teenage kids. What was the biggest complaint of your 17-year-old kid? I want my freedom. Why would those university kids want to subject themselves to socialism where they would have absolutely zero freedom? But you see, they have been deceived. So I want to just compel you, pastors. Do not be deceived. We are facing an unprecedented time in America. In Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 19, God spoke to the children of Israel through Moses. And he said, I set before you today life and death, the blessing and the curse. And then God says, so choose life. It ought to be an obvious decision. Choose life that you and your descendants may live. Pastors, we have an unprecedented opportunity to make sure that every person in your congregation goes to the polls and votes according to the Word of God. Votes for men and women that uphold the Judeo-Christian principles that have made America the greatest country on the face of the earth. We owe it to our children and our children's children. I want my children, I want my grandchildren to enjoy a better America than I have enjoyed. You know, I must have told my son two dozen times, you know, when I lost my freedom in Cuba, I had a place to come to. If we lose our freedoms here, where are we going to go? We cannot be complacent. Proverbs 29.2 says, When the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. When the wicked beareth rule, people mourn. But if the righteous, the people of God, the people to whom have been imputed the, imputed the righteousness of Jesus Christ, if those people are not running for office, are not voting, then what's left? And it becomes our fault. We have a stewardship responsibility over America. And pastors, Jesus said 
to whom much is given, much is required. So we as pastors bear a greater responsibility over our flock. And we must make sure they all have their eyes open as to what the decision is. It's between life and death, between the blessing and the curse. We must make sure that America remains a country where we can freely preach the word of God, where we can freely evangelize, where our children can be taught and raised in the nurture of admonition of the Lord. All those freedoms will be destroyed. There will be unprecedented religious persecution in America if socialism ever gets a hold of America. And we as pastors need to carry the mantle. We need to say like the prophet Isaiah, Hear my Lord, send me. Hear my Lord, use me. If all of us lock arms, and we proclaim it from the housetops. Vote righteousness. Vote for men and women that uphold the principles of the word of God. The Judeo-Christian principles upon which this great country of ours was founded. If we do this, if we all do this, we can see America's greatest days ahead. And God has used America to expand the message of the gospel throughout the globe. And we must continue to do so. It is up to you and I. I encourage you, do not let your guard down. Stand with me. Let's all stand together and make sure that America remains as that shining city on a hill to the glory of God. Thank you. God bless you. God bless America.